A warm good morning, church family. It is so great to be with you again this morning to open up together the Word of God. And I am so excited to share with you as we continue with our Kintsuhi series, where we've been looking at the brokenness that we find in life and in family and how God wants to come and He wants to bring His gospel message and restore us and even increase our value as He comes and puts us back together. We've been speaking about the Good Father. We've been speaking to men, speaking to women. And last week, the Millers did an incredible uh, job at just sharing with us of how God wants to come and minister into specific areas of brokenness, that God is in the business of putting us back together piece by piece. And this morning, I'm going to focus a little bit on the idea of marriage. Families, as we've said at the beginning of the series, uh, are the building blocks of society, and marriage is the cornerstone of families. So when we talk about marriage, it's important to, to look at this because this is what where, where, where families are founded and where fa families are being kept together and held together. Now, before any of you check out and decide not to continue watching, I'm thinking through all the single people. I'm thinking about those who've been married for quite some time and might just think I know it all. Maybe you've been through pain and divorce. Maybe you consider yourself too young to listen to a, a talk on, on marriage today. I want you to just hold on for a moment, because we're going to get into the Word of God, and I believe the message today will minister to every single one of us as we talk about this idea of marriage. It's definitely not going to be a 10-point plan to your happiest married life yet. I'm not going to be here this morning sharing tips for more fun or a better sex life or less fights, so I can hear all the singles sighing a sigh of relief. Today, I really want to help you discover the perfect idea of marriage that God has. When, when God thinks about marriage, He sees a perfect whole vessel, a perfect bowl ready for the master's use as we re read in the letter to Timothy. And the vessel of marriage in God's view is a powerful, magnanimous, beautiful, established, elevated, big and lofty idea. His thoughts around the idea of marriage is so much higher than ours sometimes. Apart from the self-giving, hard-working few that say yes to commit to climb the mountain peaks of marriage, the world sadly and the word on the street is that marriage is a rocky, low-level road of boredom and trials and not scenic enough. So our goal this morning is to get into the Word of God and get a, an elevated idea, an ele elevated view on what marriage is and what God has designed it to be. And within that, I know that all of us are going to find some brokenness in our views and, and maybe find some brokenness in ourselves. But I believe, as we said throughout this series, that God wants to come and put back the pieces together again so that we can have the right view of marriage as He sees it. The world holds low interpretations of God's lofty idea called marriage. And my message this morning will address some of that. And the way we're going to address it is to simply look at God's idea of marriage, to look at the war that is going on against marriage, and to find some weapons and some tools on how to wage war for the sake of marriage in our world today. So the invitation this morning is to raise our view, to look a little bit higher, to look higher upon this idea Maybe to recalibrate our hearts with the desire to climb a little, mount, a little bit higher on the mountain and see things from God's perspective when He speaks about marriage in the Word of God. 
Now, to help us get there, I want to share a little bit from my own life. There's something that I absolutely love, and that is mountains. I absolutely love that I, I, I'm so blessed to live in a place where there are mountains around. And, and I remember so clearly when I had the privilege of moving from Pretoria to Stellenbosch right after school to get into my studies at, at Stelly's. I, I remember a day when I woke up and for the first time and since I got there, I did not notice the, the mountains like I did at the beginning. There was a specific day that I so clearly remember that I woke up and the mountains weren't as beautiful or mesmerizing as it used to be. And I remember that day I said, God, you know what, can you, can you help me never to neglect seeing the beauty of the mountains that I'm surrounded by? I want to be able to notice it every day. And I can honestly say since that day, I remember so vividly that almost every day I notice the mountains and I make a point to notice it. But I want to take it a little bit, step, little step further beyond just seeing the mountains. There's something amazing that happens when you get to climb those mountains. Just recently, a couple of weeks ago, myself and Gideon went on a hike in Yonkershoek Valley. And there's a picture up on the screen to show you the start of, of our hiking journey. And it was absolutely incredible. Just standing there in awe of this beauty and splendor ahead of us. But the route that we took was quite grueling. And uh, needless to say, two guys wanted to show off and, and be strong. So we didn't stop. We just kept going. And the last, the last part was quite steep. And we just pushed through. And both of us laughed afterwards because for a whole week we battled to walk normally because of all the stiff muscles. But it took effort, it took, it took energy, it took resolve, it took a decision to get to the high point, to get to that place that we could see the views around us. And here's a picture right on top and we were literally above the mountains and this was the first snowfall of the winter and the little mountain that you see in the backdrop there is, is Simonsburg and on the top there, there was snow and we just stood in awe of this beauty. And I want to compare that to the idea of marriage this morning. The mountain that marriage is, as it is designed by God, and God being the exclusive inventor of this idea called marriage, this mountain of marriage is a covenant relationship. And this is important for us to know because this is the bedrock of everything that I'm going to say today, that marriage is a covenant relationship. What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement Established between two parties upon solemn promises, where two parties agree on promises made to one another, and there's an agreement or a contract. And the biblical covenant is always based on relationship. We see throughout the journey how God made covenant with man and how he has positioned marriage as a covenant between two individuals, husband and wife. This is a great idea. This is a big idea. This is a lofty idea and one that the world doesn't like that much and just wants to keep it on the low roads and walking a little bit of a route through it and say, nah, this is not for me. See, when God says, sets marriage in play, it is something that is binding. It is something that is never meant to be broken. It is a re relationship where both parties play their part and they both do their part in this, this contract. And in fact, God thinks so much about marriage and this idea that he wraps the whole story of the Bible, the entire written word of God that we have today starts and ends with the idea of marriage. 
don't know if you knew this, but right in the beginning, chapter 1 of Genesis, God speaks this idea of marriage when He creates man. Let's read together. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right in the beginning of the Bible, as we open it up, this high idea, this beautiful idea, this perfect idea that God had before sin came into play of marriage, it's right there. It is something that was birthed in his heart and something that he never intended for us as humans to have a low view of. He always intended for us to have a beautifully perfect crafted idea of this thought called marriage. And then throughout scripture, often this theme comes up. It's in all of the Bible. You can, you can go and read it and you can go and find it. And once you're done reading your Bible next, by next week, you'll see it in there. I'm just joking. If you can get to do that, well done. Read it in a week. But right at the end, I'm going to help you. This idea of marriage is there again. The third last chapter in the Bible is Revelation 19. And it, it, it's the vision of, of heaven that, that the writer has of Jesus in heaven. And it says that in heaven there's thunder and power and the sound of many waters as God speaks. And in that moment, he just heard this, the, this song saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And in the very last chapter, Revelation 22, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. So the whole story of God's message in His written word carries this amazing idea of marriage. It's right at the beginning when He initiated it and put it into place, and it's right at the end where he paints the beautiful picture of the marriage of the Lamb and the Bride, which represents Jesus and His church, and that moment in heaven that's going to be so glorious when the church and Jesus are together forever for eternity. And then the very last chapter of the Bible speaks of the invitation, the Spirit and the Bride, the Spirit of Jesus and the Bride, His church, invites the world to come and drink from the water of life. God holds such a high idea of marriage because of this reason. The reason is that He has purposed marriage to display the love covenant between Jesus and His church. Marriage is purposed to display the love covenant between Jesus and His church. So this morning, we need to stop for a moment and consider what our view is on marriage. And yes, we all have lenses, we all have experiences we all have reasons to view marriage in different lights. But according to the Word of God and throughout the story, marriage is a beautiful, perfect, elevated idea. And the invitation as we carry on from here is for us to climb a little bit higher on this idea, on this mountain of marriage and see God's heart in it. Now, if marriage is meant to represent to this world the love of Jesus for His church, then it is... So important to note, and I don't have to say this um, and try and prove this in any way because we just look around and see it, but marriage 
is under fire. In the same way that the enemy and darkness is trying to come against the church and come against restoring humans and humanity back to Jesus, Jesus and the bride bringing them back together. In the same way, I believe the enemy has put marriage under fire. And there are three things that I want to quickly bring to your attention that puts marriage under fire. First is the enemy, the devil and all his demons coming against this idea of marriage. Secondly is the heart of man, that which is inside of us, our, our un unrighteous desires, our own, own desires, seeking our own, and then the culture around us. And I just want to address these three things quickly according to Scripture so that we know how we can address these things that come against marriage. We want to talk about the devil and all these demons who comes against this idea of marriage. We just got to look around the world and we can just see that there is an onslaught of marriage. But Ephesians 6 encourages us. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. We've got to be fighting in marriage and fighting for marriages in our society. We've got to be able to discern when the enemy is coming against marriages and, and in the spirit stand firm with the armor of God and wrestle, not against the flesh and, flesh and blood, not against the circumstance of this relationship, but in the spirit take authority and wrestle the fight there and contend for marriages and pray for marriages and take ground for marriages. If you're single on, on, on this this, in this gathering this morning and seeing this message, here's an opportunity for you to partner with marriages by praying for the marriages around you, by looking at the marriages right around you and saying, God, I pray for so-and-so, I pray for their relationship. I come across too many singles, too many times that's been hurt at some point or negatively influenced that partner with the enemy and says, no, I, I, when I look at married people, I'm not interested. Thank you very much. Can we change the way we speak about marriage and instead say, when I look at marriage, married people and see the battle that they have to fight, how the enemy is coming against them, I'm going to put on the armor of God and get in the battle with them and fight alongside them. You see, there's an enemy that's putting marriage under fire. Secondly, our own hearts as men and as women. Ecclesiastes 10 says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. In our, in our hearts, there's always a battle. There's always a battle for that which is right and that which is good and that, is, that which is from God, but at the same time, that which satisfies our flesh and, and, and feeds us and, and, and lures us away from that which is from God. And Psalm, 34, sorry, Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. So how do we win this fight? We delight ourselves in God and the desires of our heart will be after the things of God. And then thirdly, marriage is in fire because of the culture around us. 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
Our culture is one of negativity. Our culture is broken. And it's just running after the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life. And it comes again against this Christian and this beautiful high view of marriage day and day and day again and just speaks out against it. And again, we need to, to, to contend for marriages. In our single walk, we need to contend for marriages and not be affected by the culture around us. In our married life as, as spouses to one another, we should not let the desires of this world lure us away, but we should be fighting. Even though culture says it's old school, even though culture says, come on, just live a little, we should be standing strong strong because marriage is under fire. We need to partner with the high views that God has of this idea. And maybe some of us just need to take a moment now and say, God, I'm sorry that I have been holding such a low view on marriage. It's impossible this morning for me to, in a few minutes, explain to you exactly the, the fullness that God has, has for this concept called marriage. But my prayer is that, that the Holy Spirit would minister to hearts and we would say this morning that we will not be part of the enemy who puts marriage under fire, but we will be part of the solution. We will be part of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We will be part of the people of God who fight for marriage in our community. So I want to say that this is war. Because of what marriage represents, Jesus and his love for the church, the enemy, our own hearts and culture constantly opposes it. So how do we fight this war? Well, the Bible says we have weapons of our warfare. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What it says is we have a war to fight with different weapons. And in a minute, I'm going to show you those weapons. But we fight this war and we will demolish any argument that comes against the beauty of the idea of marriage. We will take every thought captives so that we will be people who stand for God's idea. So we're going to look at four weapons and we're going to find them in Ephesians chapter 5. And you can follow with me on the screen as we read through this. And whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're hurting, whether you're an elderly and maybe you, you, you live by yourself, or whether you're a young kid, these weapons are something that all of us can apply in so many areas of our lives. So let's read together Ephesians 5. I'm going to read from the ESV translation. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let's jump to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. There is a war. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Lord Jesus, I pray as we look a little bit deeper into this message, that you would minister to every heart and that we would take up our weapons of warfare today and be a community that fight for marriages around us. Fight for our own marriages and fight for the marriages of others. We trust you for that. May your, your word just be, continue to be anointed under the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The first weapon I want to share with you is that we can fight with humility. The scripture we just read starts with the idea of being imitators of God. And then it explains what it looks like. Submit to one another, not just because you have to submit, but out of reverence for Christ. Submission really speaks about humility. And as our reverence for Christ, our worship for Christ increases, our humility grows and increases. When humility is part of our walk, in all of life, not just in marriage, when humility is part of, of our walk, submission becomes something we easily do. So let's talk about this word submission for a moment, because we just say that, that it starts off in Ephesians 5 by talking about submitting to one another. The word submission simply means to come sub-mission, to find a mission and to be underneath that, sub-mission. And when God created Male and female, we read right in the beginning, both of them were made in the image of God, equally created in the image of God. But he made them male and female with different missions. So when Paul writes about this idea of marriage and he speaks about submitting to one another, it means to be submitting under submission to the mission that God has for husbands and wives and a mutual respect and understanding of what that looks like. Humility in marriage is locked up with the understanding that both husband and wife are made in God's image. Therefore, husbands, your humility is shown in submitting to Christ's standard to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Let that sink in for a moment. You need to love your wife as Christ loved his church. If you go and study that in the, in the scriptures, that's the gospel. That's giving up your, yourself even before, before there was a saying of sorry. Jesus died on the cross even before we said, God, forgive us of our sins. That's the standard he puts for us as men. Wives, if you want to live in submission to God's plans, it says that you need to show your humility by submitting to God's given leadership to the headship of a husband in a house. Let's think about that for a moment. You see, the way we win this battle the way we fight this war is with humility. It's when all of us stand with hearts broken 
and, and lowly before our God and said, God, I want to submit to the mission you have for marriage and see the perfect view you have of it. Will you teach me to do so? Then we will become winners of this war. Humility opposes pride. When we are fighting in our marriage, when we have a bad day, humility opposes the pride to go back and apologize. Humility opposes self, the self-seeking, the self-giving, the, the after myself and my desires. You see, we are in a covenant relationship. We are not in a consumer relationship when we are married. A consumer relationship means that I can come and, and I just get what I need from you and I leave and there's no greater, greater connection. But a covenant relationship is it's a giving and a taking. It goes both ways. And in humility, as we celebrate both roles of husband and wife and marriage, then humility becomes the weapon that we win this battle with. Humility has to be in the hearts of singles, to see the best in marriage, to believe the best in marriage. When you see struggling friends go through difficult times in marriage, to not side with the enemy and say, this is a stupid idea, but to say, God, in humility, teach me how I can become the best person, the best husband or wife for the future husband or wife, if God has that for you in his purposes. The second weapon that we see noticed here. In, in noted here in, in scripture is the, the weapon to fight with God-directed love. God-directed love is the Christ-type kind of love that we need in marriage. It speaks about agape love when we read this passage. And agape love is the kind of love that is defined by God, directed by Him, and the type of love that God prefers. You see, any marriage starts out of that falling in love moment. That moment of infatuation and finding someone and, and the emotions and pursuing. But at some point it's got to shift onto the weightier love, which is the agape love. The love that is defined by how Jesus sees it. C.S. Lewis writes in his, his book, Mere Christianity, about this idea. The two kinds of love in marriage. The initial falling in love kind, but then that needs to move and progress to the promise of the covenant and the deeper love that we find there. Over time, this initial falling in love settles down for a quieter, deeper kind of love, which sustains the covenant. And this is the God-directed kind of love that becomes a weapon that we fight with in moments where marriage is under fire. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run, and the beginning moment of love is the explosion that started this engine. I'm going to try and, and explain a little bit more by reading from your Christianity just a few thoughts that Lewis writes about Christian marriage. He says this, People get from books the idea that if you are married by the, to the right person, you might expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find they are not, they think this proves they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change. Not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out of the old one. In this department of life, as in every other, thrills come at the beginning and do not last. The sort of thrill a boy has at the first idea of flying will not go on when he has joined the RAF and is really learning to fly. The thrill you feel on first seeing some delightful place dies away when you really go to live there. Does this mean it would be better to not learn to fly at all and to not live in a beautiful place? By no means. In both cases, if you go through with it, the dying away of the first thrill will be comp compensated for by a quieter and more lasting kind of interest. What is more, 
And I can hardly find words to tell you how important I think it is. It is just the people who are ready to submit to the loss of the thrill and settle down to the sober interest who are then most likely to meet new thrills in some quite different direction. The man who has learned to fly and become a good pilot will suddenly discover music. The man who has settled down to live in the beauty spot will discover gardening. This is, I think, one little part of what Christ means by saying that we will not really live unless, unless something dies first. It is simply no good trying to keep any thrill. This is the very worst thing you can do. Let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through that period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follows. And you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. But if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and to try prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. It is because so few people understand this that you may find many middle-aged men and women maundering about their lost youth at the very age when new horizons ought to be appearing and new doors opening all around them. It is much better fun to learn to swim than to go on endlessly trying to get back to the feeling you had when you first went paddling as a small boy. God-directed kind of love in marriage moves us away just from the emotion, the infatuation, the falling in love, and it becomes a sustaining kind of love. And, and Paul writes to the husbands, he says, this is what it looks like. Sacrificially, you will love your wives. You will lead her to places of meeting Christ where she will be washed by the word of Jesus, being seen in the full splendor and glory that Jesus intended for her. Wives, you will joyfully follow and trust the Christ-like husband that you have and the leadership that he provides to your home. This is the God-directed agape love meant for marriage. And this is a clear and powerful weapon we have to apply in this war against the world that's coming against this thought. Thirdly, we've got to fight this war with the weapon of exclusivity. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is such an important thing and he addresses quite a lot then. This is God's intent right at the beginning. It's what God said when he created Adam and Eve and he established marriage. He said there's a unity and a bond of exclusivity that takes place in marriage that is meant to remain exclusive. Means that a new family is formed and however hard it is for the in-laws and the mom and the dad of that bride and the bridegroom, you've got to let go. Because a new exclusive bond is formed and a new unity that only exists for that covenant. No other relationship, be it in-laws, be it children, be it an outside person or another moment of infatuation of falling in love is allowed to come to the exclusivity of marriage. We fight this battle and we win this battle by seeing marriage as an exclusive thing. Sometimes some of us in our brokenness join the enemy and his opposing forces through flirting, through getting involved in conversations we should not, for making jokes around our bright fires that's rather left unsaid, looking at things, talking about things that is not good and not from God. Let us not join the enemy and his clans. 
Let us be a house and a place and a people that sees the weapon of exclusivity in marriage. That this bond of unity, this covenant is not meant to be broken. It is meant to be united forever as a husband and a wife comes together. That is Christ's intent. Imagine how it would feel. And we cannot even imagine the thought. And may I dare say it, but imagine how it would feel if Jesus had to go and find for a moment something else other than us. If we need to represent Jesus and his love for the church to the world through marriage, exclusivity is of great importance. Let us not fall trap of all the temptations of the world and the enemy to make it non-exclusive and just bland and something that we can raise our opinions on and talk about. But let's protect the unity and the bond of marriage. And then lastly, and I'm going to end here, and I believe that there's a moment of, of connecting here for you with the Father, and I believe hopefully in the relationships that you have. But we fight this fight and we win this war with the weapon of forgiveness. If someone had to ask me, Pierre, how do you sum up a successful godly marriage in one word? This would be the word that I choose. The idea of forgiveness. For as long as we are on this side of heaven, for as long as we are waiting for that full moment of stepping into the beauty that Jesus has for us and the full restoration greater to what it ever was before of just being with Him in His presence and becoming new and being made new. For as long as we are here, there will be brokenness around us. And if we can take the weapon of forgiveness as one of the primary weapons in our arsenal to fight for marriage, we can win this war. For if you forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, your heavenly Father will also forgive you yours. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive you your trespasses. Husbands and wives, can we forgive the little nigglies, irritating things that we've asked for the umpteenth time to change? Can we forgive the heart-wrenching, deep, dark moments of pain in marriage that sometimes come in brokenness as well? Singles, can you forgive those who might have misrepresented marriage to you? Maybe it was in your own household of growing up as a kid. Maybe there's some children on, on, on this, this gathering this morning, listening to these words, and they, there's a sense of forgiveness needing to come to parents who decided to part. Maybe there's been years of pain that needs to be addressed, and I'm not here to try and fix all of that. I cannot do the, that. That is the role of Jesus. But the invitation and this weapon is one that we've got to pick up. And sometimes it feels so heavy. But the Bible says the more we forgive, the easier it becomes. So can we pick up this weapon and live in forgiveness so that we can fight for marriages through this in a profound way? Ephesians 4 verse 32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgiveness starts by receiving mercy. And when we have received that mercy and this image of, of Jesus, the bridegroom and the church, the bride, and how he loves her so much that he gave his life for her. When we understand that mercy and that mercy ministers to us and that mercy flow downs over us, then we become carriers of that mercy and we can win this war of fighting for marriage. 
We're going to be playing a song called Mercy for a moment. And all I want you to do is open up your hearts. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you if you are walking in humility. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you if you need to forgive or ask for forgiveness. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you see the exclusivity of marriage. And maybe there's something or some thought or some moment where you said something that He reveals to you and you need to go back because God is in the work of restoration. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So in whatever way the Holy Spirit reveals to you any area of brokenness today when it comes to this idea of marriage, let Him minister. Let the gold of the gospel come and put the pieces back together again so that we can have the same view as God has. A beautiful, perfect vessel, a covenant relationship on this world, in this world that represents Jesus' love for the church, and a week in hold marriage in that esteem. Holy Spirit, I pray over the next few minutes that you would minister to hearts. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to, to act upon this word this morning, that they would not put it off, but that they would go where you need them to go and do what you need them to do. And that we would see the restoration power of your gospel, your mercy, which is new every morning, minister to every heart today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.